0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the sand. If you've noticed from the episode title, today we will be finishing up the book. I had considered just reviewing Chapter 77 today, and then next Saturday we would hit on Chapter 78 and the epilogue. The circle closes. However... I felt like that was more for me because I didn't really want to be done yet. But reading the chapters, they're fairly short, and even chapter 78, which is I think about 14 or 15 pages, it just mostly discusses what the free zone is like now, um, Stu and Fran's decision, and I wasn't really sure that I could make that an episode, just one episode that I was really proud of. It would probably only be like 14 minutes. (laughs) So I decided that today would be a good day to just hit on the last few chapters and wrap the book up and finally see where um, King leads us for the end of the stand. But before we get to that, we are going to recap chapter 75 and chapter 76 In chapter 75, Stu and Tom are on the road, trying to make the treacherous journey home to the free zone. It is touch and go there for a while. For Stu, he has an infection in his broken leg that is getting worse. Thankfully, Nick comes to Tom in one of his trances and gives him the medicine that Stu needs to fight the infection and have a chance at survival. Nick tells Tom to do his best, and then he's gone. The pills end up helping Stu, and he beats the infection, They face quite a few obstacles on their way back to Boulder, namely the weather, but they do finally manage to make it back to the Free Zone two months after they start their journey. Stu finds out that Fran had her baby on January 4th, and the baby came down with Captain Trips. In Chapter 76, Fran is in the hospital waiting for news about her baby, Peter Goldsmith Redman. She has resigned herself to the fact that he will probably die from the superflu but Stu, Tom, and Kojak arrive, and Stu and Fran embrace. In chapter 77, Stu is with Fran in the hospital when George Richardson and Dan Lathrop come in. Dan is a doctor as well, and Fran braces herself for bad news. George and Dan ask Stu about the explosion out west, and Stu confirms that yes, he saw it, and yes, it was a nuclear blast. Rather than ask more questions, George turns to Fran to tell her about Peter. Fran assumes that he has died, but George cautions her about what he's about to say. It seems as though Peter is recovering. This takes Fran by surprise, and George tells Fran not to get her hopes up. But he explains their way of thinking. George says that Captain Trips was a shifting antigen flu, we think now. Now, every kind of flu, the old flu, had a different antigen. That's why it kept coming back every two or three years or so in spite of flu vaccinations. There would be an outbreak of A-type flu, Hong Kong flu that was, and you'd get a vaccination for it. And then two years later, a B-type strain would come along, and you'd get sick unless you got a different vaccination. But you'd get well again, Dan broke in, because eventually your body would produce its own antibodies. Your body changed to cope with the flu. With Captain Trips, the flu itself changed every time your body came to a defense posture. In that way, it was more similar to the AIDS virus than to the common sorts of flu our bodies have become used to. And as with AIDS, it just went on shifting from form to form until the body was worn out. The result, inevitably, was death. They don't know why the immune were immune, and George doesn't think they'll ever know. The key to Captain Trips was that people would get almost better, but never completely, and then relapse. Peter got sick 48 hours after birth, but he never entered the fourth and fatal stage. Every time the flu shifted, Peter was shifting right back. He seemed to be wearing the flu out. Dan explains to Fran, You've passed on half an immunity to your child, Fran, He got it, but we think now he's got the ability to lick it. We theorize that Mrs. Wentworth's twins had the same chance, but with the odds stacked much more radically against them, and I still think that they may not have died of the superflu, but of complications arising from the superflu. That's a very small distinction, I know, but it may be crucial. Obviously, the women who got pregnant before the flu hit will go through the same thing with their babies, and they may not make it but there's a good chance that two immune parents will bear children who are also immune. There are 61 pregnant women in the zone and nine conceived before the super flu. As they wrap up, George tells Stu to make an appointment with Lori to get his leg checked. His leg needs to be reset and Fran promises George that Stu will be there. When they're alone, Fran begins to cry. She says so many people dead, Harold, Nick, Susan, and what about Larry? what about Glenn and Ralph? What about Lucy? What is she going to say when she knows? Stu tells her that he thinks that they died over there. That's what he knows in his heart. But Fran asks Stu not to say it like that. It would break Lucy's heart. Stu says, I think they were the sacrifice. God always asks for a sacrifice. His hands are bloody with it. Why? I can't say. I'm not a very smart man. Perhaps we brought it on ourselves. All I know for sure is that the bomb went off over there instead of over here and we're safe for a while. For a little while. Is Flag really gone? Stu doesn't know. He feels like they'll need to stand watch for him for a while. And in time, someone will have to go to the lab where they made Captain Trips and fill it up with dirt and salt the ground and pray over it. Pray for everyone. That night, Stu and Fran visit Peter watching him from the outside of the nursery, and Fran is crying again. She says, all those empty cribs, that's what's wrong. He's all alone in there. No wonder he's crying, Stu, he's all alone. All those empty cribs. But Stu assures her that Peter will not be alone for long. Stu knelt beside Fran and hugged her clumsily, and they looked in at Peter in mutual wonder, as if the child were the first that had ever been gotten upon the earth. After a bit, Peter fell asleep, small hands clenched together on his chest, and they still watched him and wondered that he should be there at all. So in chapter 77, we get some explanation about Captain Tripps from the two doctors. It's not much that we didn't already know, but it's important to understand how the flu worked because, honestly, the future of mankind depended on understanding it and knowing whether or not the children born into this new world would survive or die. And while Peter came down with the superflu, his body also worked on fighting it off, which is a big deal because infants are so susceptible to illnesses and germs. But having an immune mother seemed to help, and Peter looks like he's recovering. There's no guarantee that the other babies born with only one immune parent will survive, but the chances seem good that the babies with two immune parents will make it which means mankind still has a chance. The people of the Free Zone seem to be aware of the explosion in Vegas, and Stu confirms that it was a nuclear blast. And while he doesn't know what really happened to Larry, Glenn, and Ralph, in his heart, he knows that they're gone. It does make me a little sad that no one will ever know what they went through or what really happened. But Tom saw the hand of God, so I suppose on some level they'll know. If they believe Tom, after all, they might think, you know, Tom being Tom is maybe exaggerating or saw something that he believed to be the hand of God. While it's a short chapter, Um, chapter 77 is still an emotional one. I can visualize all those empty cribs. Fran says Peter looks like Jess Ryder, the father, and she's glad for that. It's just the memory of the old world and everything they lost of all the babies that were never born or had died young. Stu wishes he could see Vic again and Hap and Norm. While they called him Silent Stu, he knows if he could see them again, he would talk their ears off. And he misses them as much as he misses Glenn and the others. It feels like maybe the Free Zone never had much time to mourn what they lost. Their loved ones and their way of life. Suffering from the shock of the flu, how quickly it spread and the end of the world as they knew it and then immediately having to gather to reform some kind of society and then having the threat of flag hanging over them so while things are settling now they may have a chance to finally grieve and move on chapter 78 is titled may day may day is a public holiday generally celebrated on may 1st or the first monday in may And it marks the return of spring. Um, It looks like they finally put the winter behind them in the free zone. King pushed us through the rest of it, which was nice. Two days after returning to Boulder, they had rebroken Stu's leg, set it properly, and then put it in a heavy plaster cast, to which it seems like everybody in Boulder signed it. Of course, that was improbable, given by April, the free zone had nearly 11,000 people as there was a new Census Bureau of a dozen persons that was set up at a computer terminal at the First Bank of Boulder. Stu's cast came off in April, and now that it's May, Stu, Fran, and Lucy are in the picnic area, halfway up Flagstaff Mountain, watching the Mayday chase, where a basket of fruit and toys was hanging off of Tom Cullen's neck as he ran after the kids of the Free Zone. At the picnic area at Sunrise Amphitheater, a huge picnic lunch had been spread where Harold Lauder had once waited for just the right moment to speak into his walkie talkie. At noon, two or 3,000 people would sit down together and look east toward Denver and eat venison and deviled eggs and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and fresh pie for dessert. It might be the last mass gathering the zone would ever have unless they all went down to Denver and got together in the stadium where the Broncos had once played football. Now, on May Day, the trickle of early spring had swelled to a flood of immigrants. Since April 15th, another 8,000 had come in, and they were now 19,000 or so. Temporarily, at least, Sandy's Census Bureau could not keep up. A day when only 500 came in was a rare day. Lucy helps Fran with a crying Peter. Lucy is eight months pregnant now with Larry's baby. She suggests that Fran and Stu go for a walk. Stu thought Lucy's smile looked a little sad. Fran and Stu do just that, and when they're alone, Fran tells Stu that she needs to talk to him about something serious. She's homesick. She wants to go back to Maine. She wonders if Stu ever dreams about going back to Arnett, but Stu admits that he doesn't. He would live just as long and died just as happy if he never saw Arnett again. He asks if Fran wants to go back to Agunquit, and Fran tells him eventually, but not right away. She says, I'd want to go to Western Maine, what they call the Lakes region. You were almost there when Harold and I met you in New Hampshire. There are some beautiful places, Stu. Bridgeton, Sweden, Castle Rock. Fran admits that the mountains are beautiful, but it just doesn't feel like home to her. Stu considers this, and he realizes that he had felt a stirring once the snow had started to melt, the urge to move on. There were too many people here. They weren't exactly stepping all over each other, at least not yet, but they were beginning to make him feel nervous. There were zoners, and so they had begun to call themselves, who could cope with that sort of thing, who actually seemed to relish it. Jack Jackson, who headed the new Free Zone Committee, now expanded to nine members, was one. Brad Kitchener was another. Brad had a hundred projects going on and all the warm bodies he could use to help with each of them. It had been his idea to get one of the Denver TV stations going. It showed old movies every night from 6 to 1 a.m., with a 10 minute news broadcast at 9 o'clock. And the man who had taken over the marshaling chore in Stu's absence, Hugh Petrella, was not the sort of man Stu much cotton to. The very fact that Petrella had campaigned for the job made Stu feel uneasy. He was a hard, puritanical fellow with a face that looked as if it had been carved by licks of a hatchet. He had 17 deputies and was pushing for more at each Free Zone committee meeting. If Glenn had been here, Stu thought, he would have said that the endless American struggle between the law and freedom of the individual had begun again. Petrella was not a bad man, but he was a hard man. And Stu supposed that was Hugh's sure belief that the law was the final answer to every problem. He made a better marshal than Stu himself ever would have been. Stu had been offered a spot on the new committee, but he felt like it was just an honorary thing, and they would be just as happy if he turned it down. Fran thinks Peter will be old enough to travel by June, but... Fran wants to stay until Lucy has her baby. There had been 18 births in the zone since Peter had come into the world on January 4th. Four had died. The rest were just fine. The babies born of the plague immune parents would begin to arrive very soon, and it was entirely possible that Lucy's would be the first. She was due on June 14th. Stu suggests that they leave on July 1st. Fran is ecstatic that Stu seems to be on board with her plan. He feels like others will be leaving too. Not many, and not for a while, but soon. Fran says it can feel like a vacation, and maybe they'll love it and want to stay. Of course, there's the possibility that Peter could get sick or Fran got pregnant again, but she says there are books, and they can read them. They can't be afraid to live their lives. When it comes to sick and dying, that can happen in Boulder too, They should take their chances and live their lives the way that they want. When they return to Peter and Lucy, Lucy seems to know that Fran had talked Stu into going. Stu says they'll stay long enough to see Lucy's baby, and Lucy's glad for it. Together, they all head off to lunch. At dusk on a summer evening, Fran and Stu sit on a familiar porch, watching Peter crawl through the dust in the yard. The donut-shaped shadow of a tire swing was to the left of him. They are in Hemingford Home, Nebraska, at Mother Abigail's house. At the edge of the dirt road that cut through the rows of corn was a Winnebago camper. Fran is pregnant again, although her stomach is still perfectly flat. We learn Lucy had twins. Stu believes they'll be in Maine at the end of July. Plenty of time to get ready for winter. Fran leaves the porch to get Peter out of the dirt. Stu sat there, where Mother Abigail had sat often and long, and thought about the life that was ahead of them. He thought it would be all right. In time, they would have to go back to Boulder, if only so their children could meet others their own age, and court and marry and make more children. Or perhaps part of Boulder would come to them. There had been people who had questioned their plans closely, almost cross-examining them but the look in their eyes had been one of longing rather than contempt or anger. Stu and Fran weren't the only ones with a touch of wanderlust, apparently. Harry Dunbarton, the former spectacle salesman, had talked about Minnesota. And Mark Zellman had spoken of Hawaii, of all places, learning how to fly a plane and go to Hawaii. Others discussed going south, Acapulco, or Peru. The population in Boulder grew. A lot of the original zoners didn't recognize anyone anymore. People were locking their doors at night again. Stu thinks that it wouldn't be such a bad thing if the Free Zone fell apart. Best to disband before... Before what? Well, at the last Free Zone committee meeting, before he and Fran had left, Hugh Petrella had asked for and had been given the authorization to arm his deputies, It had been the cause in Boulder during his and Fran's last few weeks there. Everyone had taken a side. In early June, a drunk had manhandled one of the deputies and had thrown him through the plate glass window of the Broken Drum, a bar on Pearl Street. The deputy had needed over 30 stitches and a blood transfusion. Petrella had argued it never would have happened if his man had had a police special to point at the drunk and so the controversy raged. There were plenty of people, and Stu was among them, although he kept his opinions mostly to himself, who believed that if the deputy had had a gun, the incident might have ended with a dead drunk instead of a wounded deputy. What happens after you give guns to the deputies? He asked himself. What's the logical progression? And it seemed that it was the scholarly, slightly dry voice of Glenn Bateman that spoke in answer. You give them bigger guns and police cars. And when you discover a free zone committee down in Chile or up in Canada, you make Hugh Petrella the Minister of Defense just in case. And maybe you start sending out search parties because after all, that stuff is lying around just waiting to be picked up. Maybe it was better to break down and spread. Postpone organization as long as possible. It was organization that always seemed to cause the problem when the cells began to clump together and grow dark. You didn't have to give the cops guns until the cops couldn't remember the names, the faces. Stu thinks to himself, all any of us can buy is time. Peter's lifetime, his children's lifetime, maybe the lifetimes of my great-grandchildren until the year 2100, maybe. Surely no longer than that, maybe not that long. Time enough for poor old Mother Earth to recycle herself a little. A season of rest. Maybe if we tell him what happened, he'll tell his own children. Warn them. Dear children, the toys are death. They're flash burns and radiation sickness and black choking plague. These toys are dangerous. The devil and men's brains guided the hands of God when they were made. Don't play with these toys, dear children. Please, not ever. Not ever again. Please, please learn the lesson. Let this empty world be your copybook. Stu finally looks at Fran as they take Peter into Mother Abigail's house for the night. He asks her, Do you think people ever learn anything? She opened her mouth to speak, hesitated, fell silent. The kerosene lamp flickered. Her eyes seemed very blue. I don't know, she said at last. She seemed unpleased with her answer. She struggled to say something more, to illuminate her first response and could only say it again. I don't know. From January to May, King pushes through the last of winter to bring us to the beginning of spring in Boulder. The population has grown substantially since the snow began to thaw. And people in Boulder are celebrating the spring with the May Day Chase. People seem happy, except for Fran. She's homesick, and she wants to return to Maine. She's not sure how Stu will take it, but he does seem open to the idea. Fran isn't sure she wants to return to Agunquit right away, which I can understand. There are a lot of memories there. Her father is buried there in his garden. But they could travel, see western Maine first, and there's a nice little shout-out to Castle Rock here, which I loved. Makes you wonder if the stand might be in the same universe as all the other horrible stories that take place in Castle Rock. Although, given Castle Rock's history, too, I would say that Fran should steer clear of that town. It doesn't take much for Fran to convince to. And, you know, she does love the mountains, but to her, it's not feeling like home. It feels like they're finally at a place where they can settle and really live again without the fear of flag. Boulder just isn't the place for them anymore. And, you know, Stu agrees. That's not surprising. He's been feeling restless, too. And things seem to be organizing quickly in the Free Zone. There is a nine-person Free Zone committee. Brad Kitchener um, always seems to have new projects going, including having a TV station working where they can show old movies and have a news broadcast. The new marshal wants armed men. Hugh Petrella is described as a hard, puritanical man. And those kind of men can get out of hand very quickly. So yes, they decide to leave. And I wonder though, what happens if they're alone? Maybe they'll be content, but I can't imagine living somewhere without any form of company beyond your significant other and your children. Maybe it'll be peaceful for them. But like Glenn said, people are built for community and they come together as they did in the free zone. Will Fran and Stu be happy living alone in Maine so far from everyone else? I sort of wish Lucy Lucy would have gone with them, but I can understand why she wouldn't, especially with such young infants, twins to take care of. But then, you know, Peter could have grown up with friends. (laughs) But that's just me going further. I'm going to imagine that later down the line, Lucy goes to join them and maybe she's got somebody new in her life as well. King jumps ahead then from the Mayday chase to summer. And Stu and Fran are on their way to Maine and they make a stop in Hemingford Home, Nebraska, at Mother Abigail's. Peter's crawling now and Fran is pregnant with Stu's baby. We do find out that Lucy here had twins, though I kind of wish we had known if they had been boys or girls or one of each. I love that Larry is living on through his children and it's very bittersweet. I also love that. They're in Hemingford home. It kind of feels like it's coming full circle here, the circle closing. Um, It's a nice little shout out. And I know, you know, if you've read this book in a month, it probably doesn't feel that long ago. But given we've been, you know, I've been doing this podcast for 70 episodes, 70 weeks, that it feels like a really long time ago that we were in Nebraska with Mother Abigail at her little home. So I really loved knowing that Stu and Fran stopped there on their way back to Maine. Stu seems to know that they will eventually return to Boulder. They'll have to when their kids are old enough and need to meet others their own age. But of course, maybe some of Boulder will come to them. Fran and Stu are not the only ones feeling that wanderlust. Others are ready to move on. They're ready to spread out and start their lives over elsewhere. Obviously, there are more people in the world than, you know, we originally thought, As the snow is melting, more and more people were coming into Boulder. So there's got to be people spread out everywhere. It is not such a bad thing. I agree with Stu. He seems to have inherited some of Glenn's sociological observations. Because it seems like the free zone was starting to sink back into the kind of society that they had prior to the flu. Some violence arming the police officers, locking their doors at night. The idyllic society that they could have had just became, it's becoming a remake of the world that screwed itself in the first place. Where will that lead? It's the organization that causes the problem. And that reminds me of Nick and his problem with the committee. In chapter 50, he wrote authority organization. How well those two words went together and what a sorry sound they made. Nick knew just as Glenn did What could happen if they started pushing the old ways again? But with Glenn and Nick gone, as well as the entire Free Zone Committee, but for Stu and Fran, there was really nothing to be done. Not with the population of Boulder growing so quickly. They have no say. Stu can only hope that they buy enough time to live, to let their children live, and maybe even their children and their children. He wants a season of rest. Maybe if they tell their children what happened, during the old world and the plague and so on and so on. Warn them about weapons and the toys of death. Don't play with those toys. Let the empty world be their copybook. Stu knows how important it is to make sure their children know how dangerous these things were and can be because there's still some of those toys all around in America. And perhaps that's where... Um, the Free Zone Committee is headed, especially if other committees, other communities form around the country. And you know what? You can compare this to the world we have now. What we teach in school versus what they ignore. Things that we don't learn until we're adults. And then we wonder why we were never taught this. We were never taught the more brutal aspects of our history. If you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it, right? So can that happen here? in a post-superflu world with so few people left? Or will humanity simply repeat the same mistakes until it's all gone? Stu asks this question to Fran, do people ever learn? And all Fran can say is, I don't know. It's an ominous, ambiguous way to end the novel. Well, at least to end Stu and Fran's journey, because it is a realistic answer. Optimism is nice, but is it truthful? Looking at how bolder is organizing and restructuring is enough of an answer. Most people don't learn. Maybe they need the familiarity of what they're used to instead of seeing this new world as a blank page to create something better for everyone. Glenn and even the judge had a feeling that this would not happen. Nothing would change. This was an opportunity for humanity to write itself to instead of working, worrying about how to get the toilets running. What? part is religion going to play in this new world compared to how it played in the old world? Uh, The committees, arming people, guns, they have a chance to do better. But given the way the free zone is going, at least from Stu's point of view, it doesn't seem as though they can or that they want to. Despite everything that has happened, despite the dreams, despite Mother Abigail coming together together, Despite the death and sacrifices of Ralph, Larry, and Glenn, people may not change for the better. Will those sacrifices be in vain? Flag may be gone, Vegas may be gone, but the real threat to humanity is itself. Those weapons are still out there. The labs are still out there with vials of death. How long before more and more societies form and another person like Flag rises? I know this sounds depressing and pessimistic, but King ended the book exactly how he should have, in my opinion. It's not wholly satisfying, but I think anything remotely happy and full of sunshine would have felt a little disingenuous to me. And we do have one more chapter to talk about. Like with Campion's escape from the biological weapons facility in California, the circle opens. Now we've come home to the circle closes. With one line, King opens this chapter. We need help, the poet reckoned. And the chapter starts. He woke at dawn. He had his boots on. He sat up and looked around himself. He was on a beach as white as bone. Above him, a ceramic sky of cloudless blue stood tall and far. Beyond him, a turquoise sea broke far out upon a reef, and then came back in gently, surging up, and between strange boats that were canoes outrigger canoes he knew that but how he got to his feet and almost fell he was shaky bad off felt hung over there is a green jungle around him and macaw screamed at the sight of him flew away blindly crashed into the thick bowl of an old banyan tree and fell dead at the foot of it with its legs sticking up a mongoose looked at his flushed beard scruffy face and died of a brain embolism a beetle that had been trundling busily up the trunk of a palm turned black and shriveled to a husk with tiny blue bolts of electricity frizzing for a moment between its antenna. This man has no idea where he is or who he is. He begins to walk, stagger toward the jungle. He was halfway to the edge of the green when it parted and three men came out, then four, then half a dozen. They were brown-skinned and stared at him, he stared back. Things began to come to him. Six men became eight, and so on. They held spears, raising them threateningly. The man with the beard stubble on his face looked at them. He was wearing jeans and old sprung cowboy boots, nothing else. His upper body was as white as the belly of a carp and dreadfully wasted. Oh yes, things were coming. His name, for one thing. And he smiled. That smile was like a red sun breaking through a black cloud. It exposed bright white teeth and amazing blazing eyes. He turned his lineless palms out to face them in the universal gesture of peace. Before the force of that grin, they were lost. The spears fell to the sand. One of them struck point down and hung there at an angle, quivering. They didn't speak English or Spanish. What did that mean? Where was he? It would come in time. Rome wasn't built in a day, nor Akron, Ohio. And the place didn't matter. The place where you made your stand never mattered, only that you were there and still on your feet. Did they speak French? German? No. He laughed, causing one of them to sob like a child. They are simple folk, primitive, simple, unlettered. But I can use them. Yes, I can use them perfectly well. He introduces himself as Russell Faraday, and he has a mission. He's come to help them. They began to drop on their knees and bow their heads before him, and his dark, dark shadow fell among them. His grin widened. I've come to teach you how to be civilized. They sobbed in joy and terror, dropping to kiss his feet, and the dark man laughed and laughed. Life was such a wheel that no man could stand upon it for long, and it always, at the end, came around to the same place again. So old Randy Flagg did not die in the Las Vegas blast. We know from Larry's point of view that Flagg had shifted, disappeared before the nuke went off, leaving behind his clothes, and now he's ended up somewhere, a remote island, it seems like. He doesn't have any memory of his name or who he is now. He had his boots on and some jeans. Larry saw his clothes drop to the ground when he disappeared in Vegas, but I guess he took some with him. <laughs> As the natives on the island appear and start to surround him, memories begin to come back to Flagg, his name for one thing. They don't understand him no matter what language he tries, and Flagg considers them to be simple folk, people he can use. He tells them his name is Russell Faraday, like so many of his past names, we get the initials RF. Is this the name he actually remembered, not Randall Flagg? Or is he simply being reborn again as he had in the past with a new name, a new mission to make these natives civilized? And of course, they're terrified and joyful. Of course, a white guy is going to show up on someone else's land to try and change their way of living, looking down on them while promising to help them. With nefarious intentions. Does that sound familiar to anybody? But Flag, Faraday, still seems to have the ability to terrify. Animals on the island flee from him and die. Flag is still carrying tiny blue bolts of electricity. His magic is still within him, even if it may not be as potent as it was before. And Flag doesn't care where he is. One of the most quoted lines from this book. The place where you made your stand never mattered, only that you were there and still on your feet. I use this quote a lot. I just find it amusing that it's used so often for inspiration and motivation, and it's coming from the mind of the book's antagonist, its villain. We are quoting Randall Flagg to inspire. (laughs) And of course, life was such a wheel that no man could stand upon it for long, and it always at the end came around to the same place again. Just like Stu thought, the wheel turning, coming back around in the free zone, slipping back into old habits, and flag spreading discord and strife over decades, being defeated, supposedly, and returning to start anew. People in the state seem safe from him at the moment, but what's to stop him from returning? The people on this island hadn't been affected by the flu, have they? Is this even the same universe, the same world? Where did Flag disappear to? Perhaps he's in another universe, for all we know. Go then. There are other worlds than these. We can only guess at this point and speculate. All we know is that Flag isn't gone. Not really. So not only does King end the stand with Fran and Stu unsure if humans can change or learn anything from their past mistakes, he lets us know that, oh, by the way, Flag is still around and starting fresh. Not exactly a happy ending, but I love it. I think it's fitting, to be honest. And if you think about it, we really did lose just about everyone we started out with Larry, Nick, Glenn, Ralph, Mother Abigail, Lloyd, Sue Stern, Dana, the judge, Harold and Nadine, Trash Can Man, Stu, Fran, and Tom, and Kojak survived, Lucy and Joe, Flag but the rest are gone. You don't really realize how much death is in this book when it's stretched out over three books. Nearly every main character that we came to care about was killed off. I usually hate books where I get so emotionally attached to people and then they die, but I feel like the deaths in this book at least had purpose, so maybe that makes it easier for me to accept. As Mother Abigail said, there would be a lot of blood spilled before it was over, and she wasn't lying, and it's very bittersweet. What did you guys think of the last few chapters of The Stand? Are you satisfied with how King ended the novel? Are you excited to see what he wrote for the continuation of the end for the miniseries coming in December? What would you have done differently if you had the chance to change anything in this book? What Death Hit You the Hardest? For me, obviously, is Larry's because he was my favorite character, although Glenn and Nick are both still up there very close. And we've at last come to the end of our journey together, Constant Readers. I started this podcast last May, and I had no idea that while rereading this novel, we would find ourselves in the middle of an actual pandemic. It has been a challenge for me and for you, I'm sure, and I think it's been a challenge for everybody. It certainly adds a little something to reading this book, although I certainly wish that we were still living in a somewhat normalized world. But doing this podcast has been amazing, and I've loved talking to you guys every week, even when things were rough. It took about a year and a few months to get through the book, give or take a few weeks when I took a break, and it's really hard to say goodbye. And I want to thank everybody who has listened to the podcast, who started from the very beginning. Or who came in on recommendations or later? Um, anyone, thank you, who has recommended it. Thank you to everyone who has emailed me or reached out to me on social media or on the circleopens.com. The blog is still a work in progress. It's not going away, but please keep visiting it for updates. And I want to quickly say thank you to a few people Matt C124, Jack Prince, Jen CD101, Classy Lake Bernard, Brooke Reading Pod. Courtney 5780, Josh B 2001, Sean Faust, Special K 0455, Derelict 88, GVSDBJJS, Evan Rude 115, MCH 1383, Trouble 06194, Obsessive Viewer Podcast, Soft Podcast, Philosopher 59, Dr. Jersey Gator, Granny Fabell, Briv Johns, BD1598, and Note Boom, who have all left me. I promise that wasn't some kind of weird Morse code, <laughs> but they have all left me reviews on Apple Podcasts. And I truly do appreciate them. Um, the kind words, constructive criticism, I always appreciate. And I try to strive to fix or make this podcast better. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much. You'd have no idea how much it makes my day to read a new review that appreciates what i'm doing i know i'm not a famous person i'm not a big name i don't have professional grade equipment but i do this podcast because i love the book and i love talking about it i love talking to you guys if you did leave me a review from another country um apple podcast doesn't let me see those so i haven't been able to see them but i apologize if i've missed you i do appreciate every review even if you just left me a nice rating thank you so much And as for the future of this podcast, I've been giving it a lot of thought about what to do now that I finished reviewing The Stand. I took some polls um, and for a while I thought about doing the Dark Tower series. But honestly, you guys, there are so many fantastic podcasts out there that are really doing deep dives into the Dark Tower. So I would recommend you guys seek those out and listen to those because I don't think I could do the Dark Tower justice the way these people are doing it. So I honestly I gave it a lot of thought. I took into consideration my polls. But I think um, I have told you guys before on the podcast that I absolutely adore Stephen King short stories in his novellas as much as The Stand is my favorite book. I think King's strength lies in short stories. So I believe um, soon. I am going to start doing um, a review of King's short stories. I'll be picking going through his books from the beginning. So I think I'll be starting with Night Shift and I'm going to do a review of each short story a week. I hope that you guys will stick around. I don't know that there are many podcasts out there that really do deep dives into the short stories. I know people will do his books, review the books and kind of go in order. So maybe they do touch on them. But I think it would be fun to kind of focus on one short story or novella a week and really um, kind of figure out what his best are, which ones are not so great, and maybe even the movie adaptations of some of these uh, short stories. So I hope that you guys will be excited for that. I'm excited for it. It's what my heart tells me to do, so that's what I'm going to do. I hope you guys really stick around. It's going to take me a few weeks to get started and get things together. Um, I'm still trying to decide if I want to keep the name of The Circle Opens or just start a new podcast. I'm just not sure yet. Um, this has been such an undertaking that I think I'm going to take a week or two off <laughs> and really sort, sort my mind to sort through things and get some opinions from you guys. So you can of course find me on the social, on social media. I don't want to sound I mean, date my age and call it the Twitter, but you can find me at the Circle Opens. You can email me at thecirclecloses.com or find me on the com, my blog. And I really hope you guys stick around for what's to come. I just didn't want to say goodbye yet. And with the stand over, I think it'd be fun to jump into some more of King's work. So I hope you guys stick around and listen. And if you have any opinions, any suggestions, please reach out to me. I would love to hear them. I love hearing from you guys. You've been so amazing. You've made this podcast what it is. And um, thank you. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome. And I wish I could say something more than I appreciate it and you're awesome, but you are. I love uh, King's Constant Readers. You guys have been so great to me. So thank you guys so much for your support. And I hope that you have enjoyed this journey as much as I have. So M-O-O-N, that spells goodbye for now.